Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Family Law Podcast from Pump Court. Sorry for the delay since the last episode, we've been mourning the end of summer. I'm joined today by Jennifer Lee of Pump Court to talk about legal funding across the whole range of family proceedings. Regular listeners may remember Jennifer's podcast from Series 3 about when the Court of Protection meets financial remedies. Jennifer is ranked as a leading junior in the Legal 500 and is an expert across financial remedies, private children, including surrogacy, and in the Court of Protection. So we couldn't have anyone better to talk to us about legal funding across the board. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Mark. I'm delighted to be here. Delight- and we're, we're okay. thrilled to have you. Um, and I think without further ado, I will uh, open the discussion. When I talk about legal funding, what kind of proceedings are we talking about in terms of where we can actually get legal funding? Yeah, well, Mark, um, I think typically when we speak about legal services funding, um, we tend to think about um, legal services payment orders. Um, So the LSPOs under sections 22ZA and ZB um, of the Matrimonial Causes Act, which was introduced, um, as some of our listeners might know, in April of 2013. So, Legal services payment orders would cover funding for legal services in respect of divorce, um, nullity and judicial separation proceedings, um, and also financial relief in connection with those proceedings. Now, um, I should say, um, however, that there are very similar cost funding provisions which have been effectively judge-led, so namely, have emerged from um, the cases decided over the years, whereby judges have awarded cost allowances, um, what are commonly known as ANA orders in children proceedings. Um, And similar funding has been available in respect of proceedings under part three of the Matrimonial and Family Proceedings Act of 1984. But that actually is not governed by the section 22ZAZB provisions is actually governed by section 22 of the Matrimonial Causes Act, which um, relates to um, maintenance pending suit. So um, so funding, legal services funding covers quite a broad range of proceedings as I think you've already sort of gleaned from the outset, but there are different um, statutory or case law provisions which apply. Sure. Um, And when you say children proceedings, are we talking about just Schedule 1 or or Section 8 proceedings as well, general welfare proceedings? Schedule 1 as well as general welfare proceedings. So it would cover your, you know, sort of standard Section 8 proceedings where parties are litigating over child arrangement orders. And I suppose we've seen a a growth of this perhaps in in the days post-LASPO when legal aid is that much harder to get. Absolutely. And I I think, Mark, you very helpfully um, raised with me or sort of um, highlighted this very recent case, um, which which you might recall, and it was decided by um, Mr. Justice Cobb in the High Court. Um, And it's a very long title, but it's called Reset Number Two, Schedule One, Further Legal Cost Funding Orders, uh, etc., etc., 
And uh, it was decided in August of, uh, rather judgment handed down in August of this year, where actually you can see uh, in that case, the court making legal funding provision to cover both uh, the mother's um, financial remedy uh, proceedings, but also uh, applications under section eight. So I think that's a very good example, really. Yes, it shows. I think those are uh, rather ambitious Schedule 1 proceedings, I think, aren't they? And Schedule 1, <laughs> quite. Um, OK, well, you said that the, the different types of proceedings are covered by different statutory pr provisions. Um, if we can go through perhaps what, what's, what, what covers what and then look at if it are, does the court apply any different factors, basically? Are we having different arguments depending on what the proceedings are? Um, I, broadly speaking, the criteria and the guiding principles you'd be looking at when applying for, broadly speaking, I'm using the general term now, legal services funding, the provisions are broadly speaking the same. So yes, by, you know, so important to go back to your, to the, to the originating statute or the case law, depending on what proceedings you're dealing with but there is a great deal of overlap. So for ANA allowances, um, when we're talking about children proceedings, th th there was a very famous case called Curry Number no. 2, where the Court of Appeal you know, suggested a number of questions the court should be looking at when considering whether or not an applicant um, should be awarded a cost allowance. And so those questions included, you know, would the applicant um, uh, would it be reasonable for the applicant to raise a, a litigation loan? Um, does the applicant have assets which they could reasonably deploy to meet litigation costs? Um, can the applicant fund the litigation by way of a CS2 arrangement? You know, is public funding available? I mean, obviously that now is completely fallen away. <laughs> public funding is no longer, you know, really um, a, a, an option. Um, uh, and also the um, requirement that the applicant should provide a budget which is properly supported and reasonably comprehensive. So just rattling through that list, I think you can immediately tell that that mirrors very largely the provisions which have now found themselves in the um, Section 22ZA provision. And what we see as well in, in the always referenced um, Mostyn judgment of Rubin and Rubin, which seems to set out those factors almost word for word. Absolutely. And I mean, Rubin was decided in the context of um, financial remedy application, um, but you will find in the judgment um, in Rubin, um, and since then in, in further authorities, that the courts have made it a point to say that actually, you know, the guidance in Rubin would apply also um, when considering applications under Schedule 1 or Section 8. Yeah, I, I've certainly, I've always used it, I have to say. Just a, a kind of jurisdictional point there. If, if one of the interesting things about the case that, that, that you mentioned, ReZ number 2, is yeah. that Mr Justice Cobb is sitting under Schedule 1. Yeah. But he then makes financial provision for both Schedule 1 proceedings and Section 8 proceedings. Yeah. So clearly you're not limited effectively i mean would you say if if you're in the under the matrimonial causes act you could have an argument about for a legal service provision order 
for financial remedies, but also then deal with, say, parallel Section 8 proceedings as well? Absolutely, because, I mean, the same judge would be um, effectively wearing various hats. I mean, it, it's, it's going to be in front of a family judge and the family judge would have the jurisdiction to deal with all those provisions. And, and by and large, we are, we're, we're talking about a, a fairly harmonised approach, albeit a different, different source of power for the court. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, I come back to this point about, you know, you must look at the specific wording of the statute always very important not to lose sight of that. So for example, when you're applying under section 22Z A and B, just remind yourself of what the wording of that statute says, but broadly speaking, the similarities are pretty striking really. And um, we'll come back to the, the specific, specific guidance in terms of making the application, but just sticking with the principles for a moment, one of the issues that seems to arise a lot in the authorities is that of historic costs. Yeah. Now, where do we where where do we stand in terms of we come to the uh, the application and, and we say well, well we owe our solicitors thirty thousand pounds please make husband or wife pay those. The the answer is um, a bit more complicated than um, a simple yes and or, or no because in in Rubin and Rubin. What Mr. Justice Mostyn said was that, um, rightly so, the, the statute says that the court cannot make an order unless it is satisfied that without the payment, the applicant would not reasonably be able to obtain appropriate legal services for the, for the proceedings. So essentially, the exercise is forward-looking, which means that um, uh, you have to guard against using the legal services funding provision as a backdoor towards imposing a cost order against the other party. Uh, but what Mr. Justice Mostyn then went on to say is that legal services funding can be awarded to cover historic unpaid costs where the court is satisfied that without that payment, um, the applicant would not reasonably be able to obtain in future appropriate legal services. So the test is very much whether he or she, the applicant, would reasonably be able to obtain appropriate legal services if those historic costs were not paid. And I would hazard a guess that given the underlying rationale for legal services funding provisions is to essentially provide equality of arms for the parties. So if, if your team is owed um, significant costs, uh, and that's going to cause a real difficulty in terms of your solicitor and your barrister um, providing services in the future. The court is likely to take a view that some, if not all, of your historic costs should be paid. Um, I have to say, particularly if the other side has been able to discharge uh, their costs to date. Yes, I suppose the interesting thing, though, is say you get to this point and um, you know, party X is the one making the application and has outstanding costs of £30,000 um, and party Y is responding to the application. And yes, is the wealthier party has discharged their costs, but has only incurred costs of, say, £15,000. Where does the court draw the line in terms of allowing one party to effectively spend yeah. more and then come back and say, well, you need to be 
paid because then it's not equality of arms. I've been against uh, litigants exactly in the position you've described where, you know, he or she has spent 50,000, my client has spent, say, 25. And, and although the courts, and this is from my experience, but also having looked at the case law, the courts have the power and often do if they are satisfied that, that those historic costs do need to be discharged to order that some of them be discharged. Um, the court certainly doesn't have to discharge the entirety of those costs. It's very much within the judge's wide discretion. Yes, I, th I thought it was interesting actually coming back to that, that case again, num Rezed number two, obviously there was a number one and yeah. uh, the yeah. solicitor's firm in question went over budget between number one and number two. And Mr. Justice Cobb said, no, you can't have the amount that you want because I set you a budget. And yes, there were some unforeseen circumstances, but you should have managed the finances better. Yeah, so I, I think if I'm correct about my recollection of this, he awarded some of those costs. Yes, I think it was two thirds. I'm just yeah. checking two thirds and then and then reduced by a further 30% for notional standard assessment. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that was to cover the children proceedings. I think it may have been, yes, it was to do with a welfare yeah. argument. Yeah. Uh, I, it, just on that, the 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 sort of thirty percent reduction is is that something that, from your experience, you see as standard that when the judge is looking at a budget, decides, well, okay, fine, but I'm going to reduce it by thirty percent, almost as if they were making a cost order. The, the the you're talking about the budget concerning historic costs, or sorry, future. Well, historic and future, because of course that was historic. But generally, in terms of looking at the budget yeah. going forwards, it, it's certainly yeah. in the costs allowance authorities. I think there's a Mustin one, MF and JF from memory or something, uh, where it's almost presented as like a rule of thumb that it's you get seventy percent of what you're asking for if what you're asking for is reasonable. Um, I, 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 yeah, I know the authority you, you've mentioned. I have to say though, I mean, my experience hasn't quite been like that. And I wonder whether it's because in, in those cases I recollect, um, I, I've always been very keen to impress on my solicitors that actually look, you know, a comprehensive detailed breakdown is required. And actually I want you to be in a position where you can justify you know, that this one particular item is reasonable. So I, I, I have to say that I've never had a case where there has been such, you know, it's quite a, a significant reduction, 30%. So yes, yeah, huge. So I, it doesn't quite chime with my experience. I mean, I think provided your solicitor has provided a budget which can be properly justified, my view is that there is no reason why the, the judge shouldn't endorse that. I mean, there might be, you know, a, a couple of red lines crossed concerning a couple of hundred pounds, but I think 30% would be quite significant. I suppose it's, it's, is the judge willing to go through the budget or does the judge have the time to go through the budget line by line and look at issues like hourly charging rates seem to be quite common issue taken in, in these kind of applications these days about the proportionality of that and how many solicitors and what level of solicitor needs to be involved. It can get very detailed. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I mean, you know, sometimes judges out of necessity will have to take a very broad brushed approach. But again, just coming back to this point about making sure your budget 
can be justified. You know, if the judge were to ask you a question, well, you know, Miss Lee or Miss, Mr. Ablett, you know, why is item Y, you know, £5,000? You have to be prepared, in my view, to have the answer ready at your fingertips. And provided you have that type of preparation and approach, I think you should be confident. Yeah, as long as you can justify it. Um, exactly. All right, well, we'll come back to kind of your, your, your expert tips around the application, but I just want to touch on something that, that comes at the end of the hearing, usually costs applications uh, of the application themselves. What's the court's approach to those? So um, legal services funding applications are, do not fall within the uh, general rule in financial remedies, whereby each party bears their own costs. So um, you're starting pretty much from a, a blank sheet, whereby effectively, if you, if you are successful in respect of your application, you will be awarded your costs, put very simply. So um, what I've tended to see though, and sometimes um, I don't know why people don't realize this, is that they are asking for the costs of the application itself, but the cost of that is also replicated in mm. the budget they're presenting to the court. So you just have, I think, as counsel or you know, rep the representative presenting this application, be mindful that you want to avoid the double counting. Yes, absolutely. But and 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 in terms of because it's it's effectively costs to follow follow the event. I think I'm right in saying that that the court can have regard to colder bank offers when looking at costs. Absolutely. So um, if you have the benefit of having made, you know, an early offer um, without prejudice, save as to cost or even an open offer, then if the other side um, has unreasonably um, failed to engage with your proposals to try to settle, um, I think increasingly when it comes to open offers as well, you know, practice direction 28A, paragraph 4.4, um, the other side should be very nervous about um, a, a cost exposure. So I do think there is certainly benefit when you are dealing with applications for legal services funding provisions to make early reasonable offers to settle. As you rightly say, quarter bank offers are admissible. I suppose that depends on the principle being conceded. But then if the principle is conceded, so an early offer and you would say open is, is the most sensible. Um, well, open or, as you've mentioned already, without prejudice, say, save as to cost, because the, the court can have regard to quarter bank offers, uh, given that the general cost provision doesn't apply. Yes, it's just that that extra extra pressure to raise the stakes for the hearing. Open. Um, OK, well, just just moving on then, Jennifer, I, I won't ask you to lay out all your expertise on this podcast. Uh, people will have to instruct you. But. Uh, any any tips <laughs> any tips for making the application though we've talked about obviously making sure the budget is properly thought out but anything else yeah I mean I, I'm sorry to come back to this point but it's so important to just remind yourself of the the wording of the statute that you're you're meant to be applying if you're not relying on the matrimonial causes act you know remind yourself of the guiding authorities on ANA allowances um, uh, and, you know, ultimately, for example, if you're looking at section 22ZA uh, and B, the test is whether you would reasonably be able to obtain appropriate legal services moving forward. 
And so when you come to draft your application and supporting statement, have that very much at the forefront of your mind. Um, and remember also that um, we've touched on having a comprehensive uh, breakdown of past and future costs, um, which must be properly justified. They have to be realistic. Um, and make sure that um, you tick off the criteria that applies. Um, for example, have evidence ready from two commercial lenders you know, that you can't obtain a litigation loan. Um, have, you know, ensure that you have a signed statement from the partner of the firm to say that a CS2 arrangement is not uh, available. Um, those seem to, to you and I, uh, and certainly to the readers, um, to the, uh, <clears throat> to the listener, listeners, I'm sure that, you know, these are basic provisions, but it's quite often the case that I see from the papers that those haven't been done. Um, uh, and the other thing I'd like to mention is that, um, if you look at the Rubin judgment, Mr. Justice Mostyn makes a point about the applicant um, being prepared to give an undertaking to repay um, such part of the funding that has been ordered if the court deems that to be appropriate at the end of the proceedings. So advise your client of that, make sure that your statement confirms that your client will be making that undertaking because without that undertaking, the courts will be very unlikely to award you your cost funding. Um, a final point is that it's, it's much more, I feel that the courts are much more amenable and you will have a greater prospect of success if your cost budget moving forward covers you up to an FDR. Um, I think you might as well focus on proceedings and cost up to that stage and forget about the costs beyond FDR because it's quite unusual. I mean, I certainly have not had a, an application for costs covering proceedings after an FDR because you know the cases have emphasized that normally funding will be provided up until the FDR stage only. Um, if you don't settle at the FDR stage, then a hearing can be listed very soon thereafter to cover your costs up until the final hearing. Because, of course, you couldn't get the FDR judge to deal with it because of well, the FDR judge, the FPR, and the, what, what was said in Myerson. Absolutely, yeah. In terms of the undertaking, I, I don't know about you, one of the things that I've I found sometimes works to placate recalcitrant payers uh, is expressing the provision as a capital advance as basically saying they're getting money, but this is money on account of a future lump sum. And yeah. so it's really, they are paying out of their own resources. They're just getting an advance on those resources. Yeah, we, we, you and I see that very often, um, particularly when we advise um, the payer. Um, I, I think it's a very practical, very clever way to approach um, or, or, you know, to defend an application for a legal services funding order. Um, it's no skin off your nose. And at the same time, it provides funding for the other party to cover their, you know, uh, legal services moving forward. What you do sometimes see, though, which slightly complicates matters is where the payee, the person receiving the monies, will say, well, fine, I will agree to that in principle, but ultimately it's for the judge to then decide at the end of the proceedings whether there should be a further adjustment. 
because needs yes. have come into it. Yeah, I mean, of course, that's always that you can't usurp the court's jurisdiction yeah. there. But but I I've had trials where the judge has at the end effectively added back monies already already provided and and factored that into a yeah. housing housing needs budget just because money was relatively tight and and yeah. if you're going to spend money on legal fees it has to come from somewhere yeah it would be fair for both parties yeah and um, lastly any absolute do not do this what are you thinking tips uh, that you have well I've mentioned or I mean this is a bit of a bugbear of mine just seeing that you know basic um, information for example you know com- com- confirming that you can't obtain a litigation loan a statement saying that no CS2 arrangement would not be available you know I-, I mentioned that again because I see that so often um, the other thing I suppose I ought to mention is that I have sometimes seen um, in applications where solicitors have included um, cost funding as part of a maintenance pending suit application when when now that um, LASPO has come into effect, when actually now legal services funding is governed by the specific criteria under section 22ZA. So just want to highlight that. I think some people are still not necessarily aware the legal services funding provisions now, you know, certainly concerning financial remedies, mm. should not be part of an MPS application. All right. Well, I think that's been been heard loud and clear. Thank you very much. And I, I think that, that brings us to an end for today. Jennifer, thank you so much. Uh, really, thank really grateful. Not at all. Um, thank you. Thank you. Uh, coming up, I'll be speaking to Catherine Ellis and Jennifer Swan about the Supreme Court's recent decision in RE-T on unregulated placements. And we have plenty more in the pipeline for the remainder of the series. But until next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Thank you.